Hello, I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and welcome to episode 34 of my Crisis to Opportunity podcast. This episode is the second of four in which I'll wrap up my podcast by exploring how to take everything you've learned in this podcast and prepare you to take action that will help you positively confront and hopefully overcome the crisis you're faced with. The topic for this episode is uncertain to decisive. Uncertainty is an absolute kiss of death in a crisis. It causes hesitation at a time when action may be the best course to follow, and it interferes with full commitment to whichever road you choose. At the same time, knee-jerk decisiveness can be worse than uncertainty because ill-conceived decisions usually escalate today's complex crises. Uncertain or poorly thought-out decisions increase the crisis mentality that's waiting on the edge of your psyche when an opportunity mindset is needed more. From the comedian and actor Jim Carrey, if you aren't in the moment, you're either looking forward to uncertainty or back to pain and regret. In primitive times, there was no time to hesitate and uncertainty had no consequences. There were four choices, fight, flee, freeze, or die and you had to act fast. At the same time, it was easier to be decisive in the past because crises were more immediate, simple, and clear, with fewer options to consider. Uncertainty in modern-day crises is quite a bit different. In fact, uncertainty is almost a given because most crises are unfamiliar, unpredictable, and uncontrollable. And their causes are frequently ambiguous, and the impact is equally unclear. Our uncertainty comes from doubt, worry, or fear that's caused or exacerbated by having insufficient information, a limited time to act, or simply not knowing where you want to go and how you're going to get there. Plus, the available choices for how to respond can be numerous, complex, and unclear. Additionally, as I've emphasized in an earlier episode, uncertainty can be a significant obstacle to overcoming a crisis because there is a time when processing, synthesizing, and analyzing must come to an end and you simply have to act. From Theodore Roosevelt, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing, and the worst thing you can do is nothing. So let's talk about decisiveness and some of the challenges that prevent us from being decisive in a crisis. There's nothing more important to the successful resolution of a crisis than decision-making, because your decisions dictate the direction that you go at every stage of a crisis. Yes, decision-making can end up being impacted by the frantic and chaotic nature of the crisis itself, which of course is no way to make decisions. Instead, the process should be structured and deliberate to arrive at the best possible decisions as you traverse a crisis. Without a clear and effective process, you may make some horrendous and potentially catastrophic decisions, which may only deepen the severity of the crisis. One major obstacle to making good decisions are cognitive biases. In my work, I found that people have considerable confidence in the decision-making capabilities. I've also learned that their confidence is often misguided and sometimes based more on fantasy than reality. In fact, research has shown that decision-making is rife with and harmed by what are called cognitive biases, which lead to inaccurate judgment, illogical interpretation, and perceptual distortion. As a result, making objective and rational decisions becomes incredibly difficult. Yet, in a crisis, there's little time and attention devoted to creating a structure and a process in a crisis that facilitates good decision-making and mitigates factors that lead to poor decision-making. Let me explain how cognitive biases can be a significant problem in a crisis. 
The conventional wisdom in classical economics is that we humans are quote-unquote rational actors. Under this assumption, we naturally make decisions and behave in ways that maximize our advantages and practical value and minimize risks and costs. For generations, this theory drove economic policy despite daily anecdotal evidence that humans are anything but rational. One example is how we invest our money and the debt we accumulate through ill-thought-out purchases. Economists who embrace this assumption seem to live by the maxim, if the facts don't fit the theory, throw out the facts, which has been attributed to, ironically enough, to Albert Einstein. Any notion that we are in fact rational actors was blown out of the water by Dr. Daniel Kahneman, a psychologist and the winner of the 2002 Nobel Prize for Economics, and his late colleague, Dr. Amos Tversky. Their groundbreaking findings on cognitive biases have unequivocally demonstrated that humans make decisions and act in ways that are anything but rational. From Daniel Kahneman, we're blind to our blindness. We have very little idea of how little we know. We're not designed to know how little we know. Cognitive biases can be characterized by the tendency to make decisions and take action based on limited knowledge and or processing of information. We may also act in self-interest, overconfidence, emotions, or attachment to past experience. Cognitive biases can result in perceptual blindness or distortion, that is seeing things that aren't actually there, illogical interpretation, that is being nonsensical, inaccurate judgments, being just plain wrong, irrationality, being out of touch with reality, or even bad decisions, that is just being dumb. The outcomes of decisions that are influenced by cognitive biases can range from the mundane to the lasting to the catastrophic, such as buying an unflattering outfit, getting married to the wrong person, or going to war, respectively. It isn't a big leap to see how cognitive biases can be a serious roadblock to the successful resolution of a crisis. Cognitive biases can be placed into two broad categories. Information biases that include not paying attention to or adequately thinking through relevant information and the use of heuristics or information processing shortcuts to produce fast and efficient decisions while sacrificing accuracy. And ego biases include emotional motivations such as fear, anger, or worry, and social influences, for example, peer pressure, the desire for acceptance, and doubt that other people can be wrong. There are hundreds of cognitive biases that have been classified. The following list are 11 cognitive biases that I've identified as the most harmful to decision-making in a crisis. Information biases include the knee-jerk bias, that is making fast and intuitive decisions when slow and deliberate decisions are necessary. Occam's razor bias, that is to assume that the most obvious decision is the best decision. The solo effect, the use of too narrow of an approach when making a decision. Confirmation bias, focusing on information that affirms your beliefs and assumptions. Inertia bias, to think, feel, and act in ways that are familiar, comfortable, predictable, and controllable. And the last information bias is the myopia bias, that is to see and interpret the world through the narrow lens of your own experiences, baggage, beliefs, and assumptions. Ego biases include shock and awe bias, belief that your own intellectual firepower alone is enough to make complex decisions. The overconfidence effect, that is excessive confidence in your beliefs, knowledge, and abilities. The optimism bias, that is being overly optimistic, overestimating favorable outcomes, and underestimating unfavorable outcomes. 
the force field bias. That is to think, feel, and act in ways that reduce a perceived threat, anxiety, or fear. And finally, the planning fallacy. That is to underestimate the time and costs needed to complete a task. Think about the bad decisions that you've made over the years, both minor and perhaps disastrous. You will probably see the fingerprints of some of these cognitive biases all over the evidence of these decisions. The good news is that there are four steps you can take to mitigate cognitive biases when decision-making in response to a crisis is required. Number one, awareness is key to reducing the influence of cognitive biases on decision-making. Simply knowing that cognitive biases exist and can distort your thinking will help lessen their impact. So learn as much as you can about cognitive biases. Identify the biases that are most likely to influence your decisions and challenge them directly. Number two, collaboration may be the most effective tool for mitigating cognitive biases. Quite simply, it's easier to see biases in others than in yourself. When you're making important decisions about a crisis, ask for feedback from others who are less likely to be impacted by biases. Number three, inquiry is fundamental to challenging the perceptions, judgments, and conclusions that can be marred by cognitive biases. Using your understanding of cognitive biases, ask yourself questions that shed light on the presence of biases and the best decisions that can avoid their trap. And number four, though brainstorming and freewheeling discussions can be valuable in generating options, they also increase the chances for cognitive biases to contaminate the resulting decisions. Establishing a disciplined and consistent framework and process for making decisions increases your chances of identifying cognitive biases before they hijack your decision-making. Daniel Kahneman also recommends that you ask three questions to minimize the impact of cognitive biases when making decisions. One, is there any reason to suspect that your decision is based on self-interest, overconfidence, emotions, or attachment to past decisions? Two, have you fallen in love with a particular decision? And three, was there groupthink or were there dissenting opinions within the decision-making process? These questions are important for both individual and collective reasons. Separately, question one is important because we are vulnerable in crisis situations and it's easy to fall prey to solutions that just quote-unquote feel right. Question two highlights the danger of decision-making based on strong positive emotion. That love can cause you to embrace a decision, even if it's not objectively the best course of action. And number three, preemptively challenges you to seek out feedback from others. The problem of groupthink can be mitigated before you start making decisions by having people involved who will proactively offer opposing viewpoints and challenge your conventional wisdom. Collectively, these questions provide checks and balances for decision-making in important and intense situations like those found in a crisis. In answering these questions, you must look closely at how each may be woven into your favorite decision and separate them from its value. If your preferred decision doesn't stand up to scrutiny on its own merits, free of cognitive bias, then it should be discarded. This balanced approach to responding to a crisis ensures that all aspects are taken into consideration before a decision is made. It also ensures that it has been thoroughly vetted for the presence and impact of cognitive biases, as well as the accuracy of the information used in the decision. This calculated approach to decision-making also encourages the rejection of the crisis mentality and the ongoing use of an opportunity mindset. 
At the end of the day, it's only by filtering out your inherent cognitive biases that you can be confident that you're making the most reasoned and deliberate decision based on the best available information. Again, from Daniel Kahneman, if there is time to reflect, slowing down is likely to be a good idea. Now let's talk about how to create a decision-making system that has a clear structure and process. Like any process, decision-making is most effective when it's structured and organized. A decision-making system provides you with a systematic and consistent framework while making decisions, allows for the evaluation of the quality of their outcomes, those decisions, and enables subsequent adjustments as needed to improve future decisions. Such a a rubric is so important for several reasons. In a crisis, primitive forces are driving you toward a fast decision. That's just the way we're wired. In a crisis, it's frenzied and messy nature. It's complex, it's impactful, it's emotionally laden, and it's stressful. Imposing a scaffolded approach to the experience of a crisis will help mitigate the above forces activate your cerebral cortex, and support you in transitioning from a crisis mentality to an opportunity mindset. In my work, I've developed a system that guides you through making a decision while simultaneously allowing for check-ins at each stage of the process to ensure that cognitive biases have a negligible effect on your decisions. My decision-making model is comprised of five stages that progressively lead you through the process to an ultimate decision. Each stage contains a series of specific questions and a key recommendation that will help you avoid common cognitive bias pitfalls at different points along the way to your decision. From Albert Einstein, the framing of a problem is often far more essential than its solution. Stage one, frame the crisis. This stage involves a deep understanding of the fundamental issues related to your crisis and what type of decision needs to be made. Essential questions to ask include, what is the specific crisis? What is some essential information associated with the crisis? What has been considered or acted upon so far, including what has not been pursued? Last, what is a simple and clear statement that best describes the decision you want to have come out of it? That is, the decision to be made is... A common pitfall in this initial stage of decision-making is trying to make the decision on your own or not getting the right people involved. You can avoid this trap by identifying the areas of expertise needed in your situation, that is, in facing the crisis, and carefully selecting a group of people with an ideal combination of knowledge, skill sets, perspectives, and experiences who can provide a broad and deep perspective on the crisis and how to resolve it. From the fashion consultant and media personality, Tim Gunn, life is not a solo act. It's a huge collaboration, and we all need to assemble around us the people who care about us and support us in times of strife. Stage two, analyze the crisis. Stage two involves conducting an extensive analysis of the crisis. This means delving into its many facets to ensure that you have all of the relevant information about the crisis. Key areas to examine include One, explore the issue from different perspectives. For example, using the diverse expertise of your decision-making team. Two, ask what, why, when, who, where, and how questions so the crisis is fully revealed. Three, highlight the information that everyone sees as most important to making a decision. 
At this stage, one of the most common pitfalls is to assume that you have your arms fully wrapped around the crisis, cease collecting information too early, and end up making a hasty and ill-advised decision. The best way to mitigate this pitfall is to ensure that you're collecting all the relevant information that will contribute to a quality decision and continue exploring the crisis when you think you have done enough. This can be accomplished by asking your team members to leverage their knowledge and experience to bring forward any information that they deem relevant. This allows potential decisions to germinate in everyone involved for a while. If you think you have finished gathering information, I recommend that you check back in with your decision-making team to ensure that there aren't additional considerations needed. Stage 3. Make the decision. This is where the rubber meets the road. It's the time to take the disparate information, perspectives, and suggestions and formulate a set of decision options from which you will choose your final decision. Essential areas to consider include 1. Create a list of possible decisions that could be made. 2. Examine the possible outcomes risks, rewards, and odds of each decision option, including best and worst case scenarios. Three, gain consensus on the best decision. Four, challenge the decision and see if cognitive biases or other flaws are present. Finally, make the decision. Jumping to conclusions is the most likely pitfall in this stage. As you filter through possible decisions, each can look attractive, and the time this process takes can start to wear on you. These variables can cause you to choose a decision prematurely. I recommend that you commit to a thorough consideration of each decision option before you return to the one that you think is best. Stage four, take action. The fourth step is the scariest because it's time to act. Any decision you make is not guaranteed to be successful and you will likely have some second guessing. At this point, you must trust the process you went through to get to this point and take that leap of faith that I talked about in an earlier episode. This is also the time when implementation of your decision becomes as important as the decision itself. As you likely know from experience, even the best decisions can fail if they're not put into action effectively. With this in mind, the following four questions will help guide the implementation and maximize the likelihood that the decision was, in fact, a good one. Question one, what are the goals and plan for implementation of my decision? Two, who has which roles and or responsibilities in my plan? Three, what is the timetable for success and how will it be measured? And four, how will I hold myself and my team members accountable? A common pitfall in this stage is to be unrealistic in your expectations of the outcome. As with most things in life and particularly in a crisis, decisions take time to take root and blossom and they don't always go as planned. I recommend that you be patient and allow the decision to slowly reveal its worth and be ready to make changes on the fly as the crisis progresses. From the medieval Persian poet Saadi, have patience, all things are difficult before they become easy. Lastly, stage five, evaluation. The final stage is one that is often overlooked. We often become so busy putting our decision into action that we forget to step back and evaluate its effectiveness at different points in its rollout. This ongoing feedback and analysis provides an evaluation during the process of implementing your decision and for the outcome. Key questions to ask include, what has worked and what hasn't so far? Number two, was there any information you missed that would have led to a better decision? 
And three, based on this analysis, what adjustments can be made to your decision-making to improve its effectiveness in continuing to respond to the crisis? Not surprisingly, the greatest pitfall is to not evaluate your decision at all. The fundamental lessons from this debrief are to identify what is working in the decision-making process so you can repeat it and identify what hasn't been working to avoid repeating it. For any crisis that has a long shelf life, you can continually use the process for the evolution of your decision as new information becomes available, the conditions of the crisis change, or progress or setbacks occur. I recommend that you evaluate your decision frequently and make adjustments as needed till the crisis is resolved. I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and thanks for listening to episode 34 of Crisis to Opportunity. And be on the lookout for episode 35 in the near future.